This podcast is sponsored by the Music Player Network at musicplayer.com, the premier musician resource for keyboard players and beyond. Since the year 2000, the Music Player Network has been the go-to source for news and views on music technology, playing tips, and gigging help. The Keyboard Corner is one of the longest-running keyboard forums in Internet history, with guitar, bass, drum, and numerous recording and music tech forums also on offer. Frequented by weekend warriors, manufacturers' representatives, and professionals alike, MPN provides an invaluable resource for any musician, and it's 100% free to sign up and use. Go to www.musicplayer.com to see for yourself. Welcome to episode 13 of the Keyboard Chronicles, a podcast for keyboard players of the gigging variety. I'm your host, David Holloway, and it's brilliant as always to be here with you. My guest this episode is Darren Heinrich, who's based in Sydney, Australia. Darren is a jazz organist and uh, plays extensively in the Sydney area, um, obviously around jazz <laughs> as an organist. Um, what makes him even more unique uh, in some respects is that he holds a PhD in jazz organ improvisation. So I could think of no one better to educate me at least on, on some of the finer points of jazz. But as you'll hear, Darren has some interesting insights on playing, his upbringing and his approach to um, jazz and music more widely. So I hope you enjoy it. Darren, thanks heaps for joining us. Thanks, David. It's great to be here. It's really nice to talk to someone in the same time zone. I, I find I, I've loved talking to some of our US compatriots and European compatriots, but yeah, nice to be on the same continent at least. I, I just remembered the other day how, you know, when I was 18 and interested in some rare piece of gear, I'd have to stay up all night to to call California about whatever. And um, so, I, yeah, the whole time zone thing has changed a lot since the internet came along. Oh, yes. <laughs> Thank God for the internet, particularly <laughs> now. And that actually, that's probably a good segue. How We've been asking the last few guests, how are you finding the whole uh, relative lockdown thing? Are you keeping busy? I am keeping busy. It's a little bit hard to remain focused, I think, but I've... You know, I've managed to, you know, write a couple of tracks and um, explore things in my studio that I might not have normally got around to doing. So it look, it's it's good and, and the the sort of six hours or so teaching I do a week has moved online, so that's it's like I don't have to go anywhere, which <laughs> that's, yeah, that's right. Oh, that's good. And so well let's start off with um, the potted history of Dar- Darren Heinrich. So um Tell us a little bit about your early days, what got you into music and, and where you're at now. Um, well, my mum played piano a little bit and there was a, an, a, an old German upright in the house and I was packed off to piano lessons when I was about seven, I guess. Okay. Um, 
and like my mum was a big rock and roll fan, so we were always listening to the Beatles and, you know, some of my very, very earliest memories are sort of putting on uh, cassettes of the Beatles and um, with my brothers and, and singing along and acting like we were the Beatles and all of that sort of thing. <laughs> but it, it's funny, you know, as a, as a young man, like at school, I mean, I was into lots of things, BMX rice, racing and like an 80s kid and, and playing uh, both rugby league and rugby union. And um, it wasn't until I changed to a school that had a proper music program, I went, oh, wow you know, like I, I want to be a part of that. So, yeah, I guess that's where I started to get a bit more serious about it. Yeah. Okay. So that was what, around high school level you changed school? Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. Um, and what was it about the program specifically? It was just the comprehensiveness of it or just like what what made you confirm that, you know, um, piano and, and obviously more recently organ is the instrument that you wanted to work on? Um. Well, I think... I mean, in those days, it was sort of mid '80s, and I, I'd um, had a like a synthesizer, Tangerine Dream sort of band with a with, with a friend at one high school, and um, you know, my first synthesizer was a Korg MS10, which you know, like mm-hmm. when I think about it now, it sounded dreadful unless you put it through a ton of guitar pedals, but. Um, it, you know, we, we made it work, but then when I changed high schools, it was, you know, there was people there who were playing all sorts of instruments in a rock band format. And I'm like, Oh wow. You know, like that, that was, um, I thought, yeah, that's exactly what I want to do. But the classical piano thing didn't really, um, make for an easy transition into that. So was, was, um, and, and for our listeners sake, um, obviously your your specialty now is well and truly jazz. What what got you was jazz the transition between say that more classical piano approach and maybe rock not being the desired outcome for your career? Yeah, well look I, I mean I was playing in sort of cover bands and things like that in the late eighties and sort of dabbling a little bit in jazz, but not really having an entry point in terms of anybody around me really being that into jazz or that knowledgeable. And, um, and then a friend of mine who was a bass, he's still a bass player. And, um, he he was taking some classes at the conservatorium and he played for me on the bass, a couple of Charlie Parker heads. And I went, Oh wow, I want to do that. That's what, you know, it was like, I mean, it sounds corny, but that was a bit of a light bulb moment. It's like, I don't know what that is, but I want to do it. So, and then I sort of set about, you know, trying to find out how to do that. Yeah. And so how did you do that? Um, well, it was more error than, more trial and error, <laughs> lots of error. Um, and I, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, trying to learn the musical language of jazz in another country. I mean, yes, people do it all the time and it seems mundane, but it's, it's actually not that easy a process depending on your environment. Whereas, I mean, if you grew up in Chicago or, or New York or New Orleans, you'd sort of be a lot more exposed to that. Um, even with the sort of, um, the, the musical culture that goes along with that. But yeah, I started taking lessons, um, from, Alice Dispense, and then uh, I had lessons from the great Paul McNamara, who's just 
an incredible teacher. Um, and a lot of my teaching methods, I guess, uh, I use his kind of his methods um, because they work. So, um, yeah, I don't think if it wasn't for Paul McNamara, I don't know whether I'd be still playing, you know, like he came along at the right time to, you know, especially as the business was changing, you know, I had, I feel like I've constantly had to upskill just to stay on the treadmill, so to speak. Um, and, um, if it wasn't for him, I don't think that I'd still be playing and, and he's still around, you know, sort of semi-retired, but just a wonderful human being and musician. Okay. And I want to get onto the business side and staying afloat um, in a little while, but you just made a great point about learning the language coming from outside of, of the US. So do you want to go a little bit into what did you find challenging about learning jazz initially and, and what have you come to realise about the unique nature of jazz and, and the US origin of it, like how, how that is easier if you're based in the US? Well, I think, you know, like looking back at my sort of suburban Sydney um, childhood, there wasn't a lot of that around. Like you couldn't walk down past a corner cafe and hear people playing or, um, you know, it was a rare thing to, to you know, growing up in suburban Sydney to, to hear live jazz. And um after some time, you know, even we had a family friend who was a, he'd been a professional drummer, but then he ended up with a day job, but he was playing at a pretty high level. And I remember going to see that band a few times and going, wow, you know, like, this is amazing. And I said to him, you know, John, can you please, can you ask the piano player, can he teach me? And, and like, he just said, oh, he doesn't want to teach. Like there were so many gigs in those days. <laughs> that, you know, those guys, you know, just wanted to sleep in all day because they'd be doing two gigs the next and they, <laughs> you know, so it was even asking around and finding, trying to find somebody to teach you who was willing to teach you was, you know, in, impossible. And my, you know, the little old lady that I had piano lessons down, down the road, it was fine for the classical thing, but, you know, I, I don't think she'd ever really done a gig in her life. So... You know, it, that was hard. And I, I, I think the the language thing, I mean, it's exactly like trying to learn to speak Spanish if you haven't really been around Spanish people a lot. Mm. Um, it's exactly the same. And then you've got the whole interface of which instrument are you going to express this language on. So um, I was very much a late bloomer like that i have a very analytical mind so i i'm sort of person who would really feel the need to understand something deeply before i'd feel confident using it if you know what i mean um that's you know yeah. so that's kind of i hope that answers the question but yeah it's, yeah no it does and and so you're right and for for listeners outside of australia obviously we're a smaller country and and jazz um in most societies, including the US, still been a smaller proportion of musicians than, say, your, your normal rock pop. Uh, I don't know about classical, Darren. Would there be more There'd be more jazz musicians, particularly in the US, and classical musicians? I'm not so sure that's the case in Australia. But um, you, you're right. It's just having access to those people, and I can only imagine um, 
how few people there are coming from country areas that are doing jazz. Actually, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. Are you seeing people from outside the metro areas actively involved in the jazz scene? Um, yes, but, well, when I think about I mean, there's a few people, you know, like Toby Hall, who was from, um, from Bathurst. He's a drummer, amazing yeah. jazz drummer. And... Um, but not that I can think of, you know, like there, there tends to be, I mean, when I was an undergrad at, at Sydney Con, I remember the director saying something about, oh, you know, most of the most of our students are, you know, from rich North Shore families. Mm-hmm. And um, when I think of outside of Sydney, like, I mean, Canberra comes to mind, but Canberra's a, a major city um, full of, you know, you know, lots of educated people. Yeah push their kids in those directions anyway. I think I think the rest of us country kids end up as cover band musicians, Darren. <laughs> so you, you got out of that. I'm still there. I'm still enjoying it, but I'm still there. Um, yeah, so no, I think that's a, a really valid point. And so you mentioned also before about, you know, staying afloat and needing to evolve and, and adjust. Um, so how have you managed that over the years as far as what what's kept it um, going for you, if not financially brilliant for you, at least what's kept you in the scene? Um, wow. Well, in, in terms of skills, um, I don't know. Look, I mean, sometimes people sit down and, and make these grand plans and work the plan, you know what I mean? Like a, um, and, and adjust as they go along. And I, I guess I always wanted to do it. And um, at certain points, I've, it's not like I've had any sort of epiphany, but I just thought, oh, I need to learn about that, or I want to learn about that, or, you know, some combination of the two. And it just seems to be maybe more luck than design, but I've managed to upskill at the right time. Like, for example, um, I can remember being, quite a young keyboard player and starting to get booked for casual gigs. And I'd always been in bands that rehearsed there till they were blue in the face. Mm. And the whole idea of turning up to a, to a gig where you don't know the music, um, uh, was kind of terrifying, but I'd, I'd, I'd had that demonstrated to me fairly on early on. So I knew it was possible. So I was thinking, well, how do I get the skills so I can do that? Um, but in, in, in terms of the, the organ thing, like that was a – I'd always been interested, you know, about 1990 um, I went to the US for the first time and a friend of mine said, oh, because CDs were so much cheaper in the States yeah. these days and so I went and brought back a suitcase full, literally. Um, and a friend of mine said, oh, you should get this album by Jimmy Smith called Crazy Baby and that's still probably – my favorite album of all albums that I own. And, um, and I remember listening to it going, wow, he's doing all the bass and all those chords and all that soloing all by himself. Like, you know, like, and, and then I always been interested in organ cause the sound just, um, appealed to me. Even like I can remember as a kid back in the seventies hearing some little texture in the back of a rock record or something like that. And, and, not knowing, but kind of, you know, in the back of my mind thinking, oh, that must must be an organ because it's not a piano. Okay. And um, 
but they're never being able to find one here because there's such a rare, you know, a Hammond B3 or C3 and a Leslie speaker is actually hard to come by in yeah. Australia. And I've spent lots of time trying to find my own. But then the clones came out. So um, I I had this um, part-time, very part-time interest in building websites and I ended up building a website um for Taramara Music and and part of my payment for that was a Korg CX3 clone organ. Oh, that's a good one. So I I mean I um and then I got that in about say the November and then a friend of mine said, "Hey, I got these gigs in January. Do you want to do them on organ?" So it was a, like a huge sort of scramble to learn 20 songs that I could cut a bassline to and so it and then at the same time, the gig scene started to shrink and budgets shrank. And it was like, oh, well, if we hire Darren, we can get a bass player and a keyboard player. Yeah. So that's what I mean. Like, I, I think I was lucky like that, you know. And at that stage in Sydney, I don't think anybody else was doing the jazz organ thing. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe, but there, I mean, there's people around, but not necessarily active, if you know yeah, what I mean. Yeah. Um, and, and so that that interest in the jazz organ even led to you, well, not only starting but completing a PhD in jazz organ improvisation. So a couple of questions on this. We'd obviously love to hear the process for you in achieving that, but also <laughs> you've obviously managed to maintain your passion for the organ after doing a PhD, which can sometimes be a challenge. Um, some people lose all interest in their topic after spending so many years at that high level of education. So, yeah, tell us about what got you into that level of study and, and how you've maintained your interest. Um, well, when I was – I mean, I did my – degree in jazz piano as a very much as a mature age student um and you know so i guess that's sort of further evidence of being a late bloomer but um during that process um like we'd play at concert practice and and i ended up sort of playing at concert practice which is pretty intimidating for me it's like all of your peers and all the teachers knew and saying hey that was good or that wasn't good and here's why um but you know so i managed to incorporate organ into that undergraduate thing and did a little honors paper and recital based upon that but then uh many years later maybe 10 years later I, there was all these things that i wanted to study about the organ and i wanted to find the time to you know like well i wanted to find the time to do it and i sort of needed to justify it um in terms of trying to get the maximum out of um putting in all that effort and i just thought well if i do a phd i can study all the things that i want to study in a in a but i'll just be doing it formally and i'll I'll get a qualification at the end of it. So, and then I was lucky enough to get um, an APA scholarship. So I, I basically got paid to do it. So you know, the, I have there's no complaints from me there. And look, it's easy to make a, a musician complain. Um, you know, it's like you know that old joke. But um, even uh, I, I can't think of anything negative about the whole process you know i just loved it from even the hard stuff 
I love from beginning to end. So I was very, very lucky to get to do that. Yeah, and and so for those, I mean, there'll be a lot of our listeners that do understand what a PhD involves, but some some don't. Just give a little bit of an overview of what the hurdles you need to jump to to finally get um, that qualification. Um, well, I guess the first thing is you've got to show a need to do the research. Like, you know, if you were wanting to do a PhD on John Coltrane, I, I reckon that territories. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm sure somebody can always find something new to say, but a lot's already been said. So the cracks in the knowledge are, um, are not very wide, whereas nobody had done a PhD on jazz organ at that stage. And um, so you have to – it was easy for me to show a need for it. And, and then you've got to learn uh, about how to research. You know, there's some technical things to do with that. Um, and then, I mean, I, I didn't want to do this PhD if it wasn't going to improve my playing. And so I made it basically a method for me to find a way to practice all the, yeah. all the language that I wanted to practice and improve upon. And look, I probably touched about 20% of the things that I wanted to, but, um, there was a point where my supervisor said, oh, you'll have to stop um, transcribing now, <laughs> you know, like, but it, I, I basically transcribed a whole lot of Jimmy Smith stuff and um, found he had a vocabulary and I was inspired by hearing about, I can't think of the researcher's name now, but somebody's done a PhD into Charlie Parker's improvisation, improvisational vocabulary. Okay. And they found he had 70 phrases that he would use, mix and match, edit, extend, play in different keys, all of that, which is a lot. That's a, that's a mm. big vocabulary. Um, and so I, I, tra I remember the first big Jimmy Smith transcription I did. I transcribed, you know, every chorus of his famous solo on the champ. And then, and then I, you know, going through it, I found, oh, well, there's that phrase again, or, or there's, there's a phrase that's a bit like that, but he's doing it in, you know, like, so, and then I did, so I, I identified all this early vocabulary of some from his first recordings, which um, created such a stir on the New York jazz scene. And, um, and then I started to find a way to practice those in order to incorporate that vocabulary into my playing. So it's not really just learning a lick and then reproducing it it's yeah it's it's more language based than that and so i've had a faulty assumption too because i i'm sort of equating the phd you've done with say a teacher or a historian or a, a nurse or whatever doing that more academic and this is obviously an academic exercise but as far as writing a hundred thousand word thesis with a a method and a literature review and a conclusion now there's obviously an aspect of that i'm assuming for yours but it was there also a performance aspect um, yes, I submitted recordings um, that I did. I did some recordings of uh, compositions. I recorded those in my home studio, which I was glad to get a good result from that. Mm. And so they're, they're in the ebook version. And then there's some live recordings of myself and um, Sam Rollings and Andrew Dickerson at Lazy Bones. Um, so that, and that was just a gig that got recorded and turned out well. And I thought, well, that, there's a good example, everything. And then I, 
I videoed some of my uh, processes and uh, of of how I practice this stuff, and some of those are on uh, my YouTube channel, Jazz Organ Bites, and and then others are just in the ebook version of the of the paper. Okay, which I'll I'll, tra- I'll track down, or I might get you to send me a link. But yeah, I, sure. I know it'll be all on the databases. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that's great. Thank you for that, and we'll definitely be linking to the videos as well. So you you achieved that qualification, which is you know an incredible feat. What's that done? Obviously, it's helped you, as you said, in in developing um, your own playing. But it, has it assisted you uh, more widely in the industry? Where? Well, look, it's it's a weird thing, you know, like. Um... It has. I mean, I got, you know, it took a couple of years, but um, I got invited to to start teaching it at the conservatorium. And I I just finished teaching at another institution. So it was nice to pick up, um, you know, another uh, formal sort of teaching gig. And and it's a very, very, very nice um, place to work. And and the students are great. Um, And... In the industry, look, I don't know. Like, I might, you know, my musician friends, um, you know, will they like they like to make a fuss of it sometimes on gigs and <laughs> and um, but it's you know, and it I, I guess the the biggest thing is it's done besides improve my playing is is just um, give me more confidence that I've kind of you know like if I'm honest I've sort of lacked in confidence you know most of my life. So it, it's been a it's a nice shot in the arm, and in any time if I'm feeling um, sort of uh, you know less than what I should be, I go, oh, hang on a second, I did do that. That's, That's right. right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've contributed unique knowledge to the field of jazz. So yeah, it doesn't get much better than that. Um, so no, that, that's great, and obviously you're still very actively um, playing. And you mentioned about the decline in, in gigs and stuff. So I mean, what is the local scene like compared to say ten or twenty years ago? Oh gosh, it's funny you mentioned that. I was, um, you know, so much time on my hands at the moment with the whole pandemic thing, and um, I was going through some boxes and having a clean out, and I, I came across this diary from 1990s. <laughs> And, um, you know, in, and obviously in those days it is a paper diary and um, uh, and I must have gone through at the end of that year and counted up all the gigs that I'd put in my diary. And there was – so in that year, 1998, there was 200. Wow. Or at least – there was, there was maybe like 220 or something like that. There was a lot of, a lot of playing. And um, – Yes, it, it was really interesting because when I think about it, you know, I was probably at, um, you know, uh, I'm I'm probably ten times the musicians I was, you know, was you know twenty mm. years ago. There's like a tenth of the work, so yeah. <laughs> it's you know, I mean, and look, and part of that's getting older, and and I will admit, getting a little bit fussier about the kind of gigs that I do. Um, but I've got to, I am happy to say that. I might do less gigs, but the ones that I do are of a sort of higher caliber, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. So you, you can't have it all. No, that's right. And, I mean, for again, for our international listeners, are there some uh, notable jazz musicians from Australia or other ones that 
uh, you admire. And and just as an aside, obviously I'm I'm a total heathen in regards to jazz. I, I fully admit that. Um, so I, you know, my limit of um, musician knowledge in the Australian jazz scene doesn't go a lot beyond James Morrison and Don Burrows. And obviously, I even had a bit of a tear in my eye with that. Australian story um, episode on Don Burrow's passing away and his, um, his yeah. yeah, it was great. So, but so t- talk a little bit about the the Australian scene. You know, some notable people. Um, so for the jazz heads in our audience, they can go and check some of that out. Well, I think um, I want to mention the great organist and pianist uh, Cole Nolan, who who passed away about a year ago. Cole was a like a true Australian pioneer of, of jazz. And um, his records that he made with his organ quartet um, are rare and they, they, they fetch huge prices on eBay. And um, he was like the first Australian guy to do the traditional sort of Jimmy Smith stuff, um, you know, left-hand bass and pedals and, and carting around the, B3 and a, and a Leslie speaker. And um, he, he was one of those completely natural musicians, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, here's another great example. I'd ask him to teach me and he goes, oh, mate, I can't teach, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so music for him was a very indifferent sort of um, very natural, you know, all ears kind of expression and, um, I owe him a, a great debt because he had a trio gig very close to my house. Um, this is uh, maybe 15 years ago. And um, as his health declined, I'd get these last-minute calls to come in. And, and I, I had sort of, you know, less than probably 10 gigs under my belt at that stage on the organ. So it was it was one of those, looking back, it was one of those classic, you know, thrown in the deep end during a torrential uh, storm and and um and having to sink or swim and that taught me a lot so Cole's definitely worth checking out I mean he's famous for like soundtracks to the movie like Picnic at Hanging Rock in terms of just being Australian Australian jazz royalty um you know he, he needs um his praises sung so yeah check out Cole that's a great one, um, and I'll be yeah seeking out some of his stuff and linking to that. Um, and just let, let's talk a little bit of gear, uh, Darren. So obviously you mentioned the rarity of, of B3s, particularly when um, you're growing up in, in early adult years, and I can vouch for that. I only got to to lay hands on my first one in my late 20s. Um, yeah, what, what gear do you currently use um, f- regularly in gigs? Um, well, on gigs, I have um, I've gone through a lot of different you know clone organs, but I'm playing the Viscount Legend organ at the moment. Which, and full disclosure, I, you know, after owning that those organs or that that company's organs, I sort of became the Australian distributor. Okay. Um, but so, but I mean, that's just like a hobby farm business for me. I might sell two a year if I'm lucky. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, that's that's a great organ, and um, you know, I I was dragging around a Leslie speaker for it for a long time, um, and using that on most gigs. But then I managed to get um, sort of good regular amplification sorted out for it, so the Leslie stays at home, and and 
the Leslie Sim and that thing sounds wonderful. So, and so you and, just use standard amplification, but using the simulator or, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so that's your go-to piece. And then um, on on the B three or C three side, so you've you've had the opportunity to play them over the years, obviously. Yeah, I um, I managed to get um, oh, about thirteen years ago. I managed to get my own Hammond. Um, and for some reason, I get really lucky with Leslie's sort of coming my way. And I've got way too many Leslie's. I, I mean, I got given one for free recently. And um, so I have, I've got like four of them hanging around the place. But um, they're, they're so, I had to find one uh, um, for Sydney Conservatorium recently, like an organ and a Leslie. And I, I probably spent two weeks full time you know, ringing, emailing, uh, turning over every rock I could possibly find. And I managed to find one, but it was ridiculously expensive. Yeah. And, but, it, but it's a good organ, so that, that's a good instrument to have in a, in a university situation like that. That's kind of where it belongs. Um, but, yeah, um, and a lot of the organs that are in Australia um, are after – like they were built by Hammond after 1963, so they can tend to have a lot of issues that are expensive to fix. Yeah. And so you've got to be very careful here. Whereas if I any any city in the US, you could you know if you needed an organ tonight, you could find one. That's yourself. right. Yeah. And do you recall? I've gone on about this in a previous episode of what a religious experience was playing a B3 for the first time, even in my own limited way. Do you remember the first time you actually laid hands on one? I do. I, when, I, when I was at in high school in year 11, I went to do like they have this work experience program, which I, I don't know whether the overseas schools have that, but it's basically letting kids out into the real world and have the adults boss them around. But I, I was lucky enough to um, go to ABC Studios and, um, and the great Australian jazz band Galapagos Duck were cutting a record. So, I mean, that was that was an amazing situation and a very funny situation. But um, the pianist in that band, Bob Egger, um, he had to play um, Hammond organ on one track. And so very, you know, very briefly I got to sit down and, and play it between takes and, you know, I was just amazed at the sound. Yeah. Um, and I was also amazed at the work ethic of, Australian musicians of that generation because, I mean, that that um, studio in those days was in East Sydney. So at lunchtime it would be, you know, instruments down and, and down the pub. <laughs> and so the, the takes after lunch, there was always, you know, more takes after lunch that, that were all false starts and things like that. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, yeah, it was uh, – people don't do that so much anymore. But the, no. the – I think, as as the old joke goes, if you want to be able to play drunk, you got to practice drunk, and I think that might have been a, a thing for that generation. See, there's there's a motto we could all live by. <laughs> um, that's a really good one. So, um, and what are some of the biggest lessons? And I know this is a very broad question, particularly in the case of what you play. But what are some of the biggest lessons you've learnt as a keyboard player, or organ player, over the years in relation to gigging? Um, well, I think it's, I think it's to be ready. 
that's and that's a very open sort of question but you know it's i think like one of the things at the moment is you know with i'm sort of struggling at times to find the motivation to do technical practice and i realize my hands aren't as strong as they would be if i was because so many gigs are canned at the moment but um you know, I'm still practicing and, you know, there's a Beethoven piece that I love playing that's great for the hands and um, and that, that seems to be enough maintenance, you know. like I've, But in terms of being ready, it's that's a really hard one. It's like, um, well, going back to Paul McNamara, you know, one of the greatest things he ever taught me was, you know, I was asking him, you know, how do I play chords behind a somebody who's soloing, you know, because mm-hmm. My first efforts in jazz, you know, some of the horn players were pretty unkind. Um, and he said to me, Well, that's really hard because he said it's like going down to the soccer field and, and you can run around in the mouth of the goal all you like, but until someone kicks a ball to you, then it's, um, it's all academic, really. <laughs> so um, I think, you know, it's just trying to, to listen to as many records um, as you can um, and at least have some idea. Like you don't, you can't be an expert or know every tune, but I think if you have a, a varied enough diet musically, then you can be ready for a lot of things. The other thing that I think I've learned recently, you know, sort of having hit my 50th birthday is that I've stopped trying to be all things to all people. Yeah. Um, I think I, for a very long time, tried to be this guy and that guy. And, um, you know, I guess in Sydney I'm sort of known as the organ guy and that's great. You know, do I – but, I, I mean, I sort of wish I was still doing more jazz piano gigs and I did a, a piano trio gig recently that was just a blast and I haven't really done that format for so long. Um, but it was just like, oh gosh, I've got to get back and do more of that. So, and I, 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 you raise a good point there. As far as I purposely avoided even talking about the style of jazz you play, because I can imagine that's a fraught area; <laughs> it can bog you down for hours. So that's why I've avoided that. But it, it's interesting you just mentioned even the piano versus organ stuff. As far as getting back and doing something a little different. Yeah, well, it's. I mean, I guess I'm a, I'm mostly attracted to I'm mostly attracted to the fairly swinging straight ahead kind of stuff. But I've also spent a fair bit of time um, working on sort of more, you know, advanced harmony and modal concepts and things like that. Um, but I'm not real. I wouldn't say I'm really a fusion person, or yeah, okay. like I, I have you know almost zero skills with. Um, bizarre time signatures like 11-8. Like I'm not attracted to – I'm not really attracted to that music. And um, But if I am, if, if, if I come across a record that really switches the brain on, I'll be all over it like a rash. But until that happens, it would just be uh, some sort of I'd, – I'd be playing it for the wrong reasons, I think. And, and so you you mentioned that you're doing some studio stuff, whatever. So – and I, I plead guilty on this, I haven't noticed you. Have you released um, your stuff under your own trio um, previously or is that something you've got planned for the future? Or um, Well, I've got – I think I've got three trio records of 
organ music. Great. Um, and one of those got a nice little award in Keyboard Magazine in the US. So that was, oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, and then I, I did have planned to to record um, a duo album at home this this year, um, but the whole pandemic thing has gotten in that. So yeah, I've, I've I mean I've started pre-production for it, but it's just going to be an album of um, uh, guitar and organ. And I've got you know I've got a lot of guitar player buddies, so um, I've got you know they're all going to do probably three tracks each with me, and as a and that's something I can record at home very easily. Mm. Um, and get a and get a good sound and I mean recording drums here is a little harder but um, yeah sure we can do it <laughs> and that, that probably answers the question of what you've got coming up um, in the next year or so so obviously teaching but it sounds like you've got a bit of a project underway yeah that's underway and um, I was supposed to go to Italy for some gigs in June but that's completely uh, yeah. and um, it probably won't be on until the following. Um, northern summer so uh, that'd be nice but um, yeah that's great and and um, just uh, you mentioned about Italy uh, any predictions <laughs> not that any of us know you want to make on when uh, we'll all be gigging again I mean Australia's a little bit different to some other countries but I still can't see 2020 being a year that features any great live music um, I think you know pubs clubs performance venues will be some of the last things to reopen I do remember somebody um, saying, you know, somebody in the know saying, you know, like uh, the live music industry was the first to go, which I think is pretty true here in Australia. Yeah. Um, and and it, and and the same person, well, this person said, oh, you know, it's probably going to be the last thing to reopen, you know, because I think, I mean, in Australia, music's a luxury, and 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 a lot of places um, aren't willing to pay what it's yeah. I mean it you know so I think as as pubs and clubs get started again I think they'll be very they'll be treading very carefully with their budgets having said that you know like I ideally hope that it's something like you know World War Two finishing and people go yes. nuts partying so <laughs> that's right yep that's my prediction as well well maybe hopeful but that's what I'm hoping yeah, that's for as well hoping for it too that'd be a lot of fun and, and us, us cover band musicians will probably have a bit of a renaissance for a few months. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, well, there's nothing wrong with, with cover bands. You no, know? no. I mean, not everybody there's um not everybody is a great composer, and nor should they be, you know. No, that's right. Um, and it's interesting that because I, I grew up in that in that cover band scene in Sydney in the late eighties and early nineties, that was so strong, you know, like there was just so much work for that mm. kind of thing. And, you know, when I was 18 years old, I was sort of doing, you know, five gigs a week, summer, winter, didn't really matter. Um, sometimes more than that. But I mean, in, in jazz world, because the tradition is standards, I mean, you could look at those as covers, yeah, yeah. But we just play them our our own way, so that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if anybody's um, hung up on that, you know, like you can, that's something you can definitely let go. There's just music, you know. And yeah, that's right. If you like, if you like a song, and you're gonna make somebody happy in the audience by them hearing that song, you know, then yeah, I agree. 
And and speaking of covers, let's talk about album covers. The last question we ask every guest, Darren, is the dreaded Desert Island Discs question. So five five albums you couldn't possibly live without. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, there's the Jimmy Smith Crazy Baby that I mentioned before. Yep. And, and then um, um, I still have my 1980 uh, vinyl copy of ACDC's Back in Black. So <laughs> Good move, yeah. I, uh, and every time I put that, I put it on the other day as I was um, painting the house, and uh, that's just just like a perfect record, and um, it makes me want to play guitar. But then the learning curve kind of puts me off. Yeah. Uh, so there's there's two, um, and then um, there'd be uh, Brother Jack McDuff's uh, live album, and I okay. think the CD version of that is kind of a um, like a compilation of two live albums as well. Um, and then there'd be my, um, let's see, I mean, there's so much to choose from top five, but um, there'd be Larry Young's uh, Unity record in there. So okay. have you ever got... That's four, you got one to go. Uh, now, then I've got to have... Uh, oh, well, I, I couldn't do without James Brown, so um, can I sneak in the James Brown... Um, uh, Star Time box set. Yeah, absolutely. You're not the first to sneak in a box set. <laughs> <laughs> and that would probably keep me very happy. But, oh, yeah, I might need some Stevie Ray Vaughan in there as well. I don't know. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And it's interesting, Back in Black, because you're right, that's a commonly um, cited one for very good reason. And I, I haven't looked for a while, but I think it's like the third biggest selling album in history, that one. Yeah, well, and it's interesting, you know, because what has always appealed to me, even that, even in times before I really knew, is besides the songs and the sound, like that band grooves like so hard, and the, um, and that's the that's the African American influence in there. And I I remember reading this interview with Malcolm Young, and somebody said to him, "What's the difference b between rock music and rock and roll music?" And he said, "Well, rock and rock and roll has a swing." You know, mm. and that comes out of all the blues stuff that him and Angus love so much. So it's, um, you know, it's that I think that's what appeals to me about it the most. You know, Phil Rudd, Phil Rudd's incredible pocket and and the, yeah. it, the you know, it's, it's I love yeah. it. <laughs> that, it's great. And Darren, look, thank you so much for that. And I, uh, for the sake of our jazz playing and listening audience, I, I do apologise. I probably haven't been able to ask um, some questions some of our listeners would have loved, but I'll, I'll wait for that in the comment. But uh, comments on, on the actual show. But, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. And um, I, I definitely need to try and get that whole 70 or 80 kilometres north to um, actually see you play once, we, once you're back into it. Yeah, great. That'd be good. There's the interview. Um, a huge thanks to Darren for taking part. I, I found that extremely illuminating and I, I could certainly use a lot more education in regards to jazz and that certainly has got me on the right road. Uh, do check out our show notes because we'll be linking to a lot of the information that Darren linked to as far as artists um, for some deeper listening. So, yeah, I'm personally looking forward to that as well. 
So the Keyboard Chronicles will be back in a fortnight or so, but just a reminder that you can keep in touch via a few means. Our website is www.keyboardchronicles.com and we're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash keyboard chronicles and on Twitter at the keyboard chr1. Uh, we're always up for a good old-fashioned email, so do drop us a line at editor at keyboardchronicles.com. And, um, yeah, most importantly, thanks to you for listening, and I look forward to seeing you back here in about a fortnight. <laughs>